Well, good to see you this morning. It really is good to see you. This time last week I was waking up in an airport. That's never fun, but glad to be back with you. I hear uh, Valentine did a fantastic job, which I knew he would, and uh, hopefully you were blessed uh, by last week if you were here. If not, um, I'm working on getting him in the lineup for the spring uh, to have him come in and preach again before he, uh, he's right now being trained to plant churches, and so he's getting ready to go plant a new church. And, uh, and so in the meantime, trying to get him some opportunities to preach and keep him you know, on top of his game, but it's always a blessing because he, he comes and is anointed by the Lord uh, when he comes. So hopefully you get to, get to hear from him again. Uh, we are going to be to this today and the next week landing the series, so to speak. So uh, if you could imagine with me that a series is like taking off an airplane ride, uh, we're, we're approaching the runway. And we've got this week and next week to land the series, Marks of a Disciple, and then we'll roll into a Christmas uh, series entitled Jesus. Super creative, uh, but, but super powerful. And what we're going to do for the, for the Christmas season this year, uh, the three Sundays leading up to Christmas, we are going to actually be looking at how each gospel writer introduces Jesus as the baby. Um, they, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all call him something a little bit different. And so we're going to look at the things, this, this phrasing, this wording that Matthew uses to describe baby Jesus, Mark uses to describe baby Jesus, and then Luke for the three Sundays leading up to Christmas. And then Christmas Eve this year is actually going to be celebrated on Christmas Eve Eve here. So if you haven't heard that yet, um, our typical Christmas Eve services that we do every year, um, because of the way Christmas falls on a Tuesday, Christmas Eve is on Monday, Sunday is right before that, instead of doing two services on Sunday, then two on Monday, we're gonna pull Christmas Eve services back to Sunday, so be in the worship guide, on Christmas Eve Eve, and so we'll do a morning service at 1045, and then we'll do an evening service at six. Both will be Christmas Eve services, and so that is gonna be an exciting time. The kids' department is putting together um, the first 20 minutes of that service with songs and a script and acting, it's gonna be really good, and then uh, our worship team will be here to lead us in singing uh, Jesus-centered Christmas songs as though there are any other, and then uh, we'll hear a brief message uh, about the gospel, and we'll be done. So that's coming up. So this week, we're going to look at uh, the, the topic of worship, specifically corporate worship. So I'll be using that phrase today. What I mean by that is when the saints of God, when the believers in God gather together, we collect ourselves, we're, we're corporate, okay? Me, uh, alone, walking through the woods, worshiping God, there's, there's a corporate since there because it's me and God, but, but you're not there. So what we're looking at today is the idea of when the saints gather together for corporate worship in a place, um, we, we call that place the church. Now, um, what we don't mean is a building, and what we don't mean is necessarily Solid Rock Church um, or another church, but that when the saints collect themselves, that's where you find God's church. And if it's in the middle of a pasture, if it's in a home, in a living room, uh, if it's in a basement, um, you know, in China, because you'll be persecuted if you're found out, or if it's in a building like this, what's what we're talking about when we talk about corporate worship is when the church comes together to lift praise to God, okay? And so what we're going to do uh, this week and next week is just comb through that Acts 2, 42 through 47 passage again, looking for the description of, the elements of, the essence of what worship is when the saints gather together, okay? So that's what we're going to be primarily is Acts 2.42. If you want to turn there, I'll give you a second. Um, in, uh, in, the, in the chairs around you should be a blue Bible if you don't have your own, or feel free to jump on your iPhone or Android and download a, a, a Bible app or grab your own Bible and turn with me. Um, if you have been 
in your own Bibles making notes, hopefully you're beginning to kind of layer some notes over this passage and see how significant this passage is to who we are as a church. And so we're going to be in Acts 2, starting in verse 42. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to pull it apart and, uh, and look at the, uh, the elements of, the essence of, the heartbeat of corporate worship. And then at the end, I'm going to have Jason Lewis come up for a little Q&A to kind of help us land the message today. So in Acts 2, starting in 42, this is the first group of believers in response to the apostles' teachings. About 3,000 have given their lives to Jesus and were baptized. And so in 42, these people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That should be very, very familiar to us. We've heard a sermon on each one of those already. And then verse 43, a description, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, verse 44, and all who believed were together and all and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, verse 46. And day by day, it's this idea that just was continuous, it's almost like every day, day by day, attending the temple court together or the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we're going to do is look at these, these verses together, and we're going to extract out of here the descriptions of, the elements of, the essence of, the heartbeat of corporate worship. When the, when the church collects itself to praise God, what does it look like? Now, this topic in general has been pretty divisive in the last 20, 30 years in church because of... Um, well, because of our self-centeredness, and secondly, because I think we've, we've drifted so far away from this passage and others like it that describe this boiled down, very basic version of church. So how do we decide what we put into a service? How do we decide what we do when the saints collect themselves together, whether it's in a home or in a building that we call a church? What do we do? What do we, we have a welcome in there. Where's, where's that in the scripture? We sing songs. Where is that in the scripture? We have a, a sermon. We have elder-led prayer. We have all these elements we put in. Sometimes we have videos. We have slides. And, and so where do we get to a place where we can say these are the necessary elements okay, for the church when they collect themselves together to be participating in what I would call healthy but God-honoring, biblically described worship, regardless of whether or not it's a choir or not a choir, an organ or a guitar, a piano, no instruments at all, singing out the hymns, singing off the, regardless of all of those things, okay, what are the necessary elements of biblical corporate worship? So what I want to do is, um, this first part's going to be faster than the last part because we've already worked through these elements. So I've got an illustration for you to um, help keep you awake this morning. Um, it's, uh, I just fashioned a big Chinese throwing star, so Got my eye on you and see how it flies. Not really. Um, this is going to be an illustration that will hopefully help us understand a little bit more about what's going on. So I'm going to walk through just briefly the outward, ele- the outward um, appearing elements, okay? The things that you can see when you walk into God's family, into God's church and see people worship. Things you can see, okay? And so the list starts with devoted. So what I'm going to end up doing is pulling all this together. And so the, the center of... Um, everything begins with devoted. If there's no devotion to God, it doesn't matter what songs you sing. It doesn't matter what words that you include in your prayer. If there is not a sense of devotion to God, right, 
nothing else matters. And that's why this passage begins with, and they devoted themselves. Now, if we go all the way back to one of the first sermons in this series, and we, we, we talked about the word devoted for a whole Sunday, what it looks like, we understand this is not something that we muster up ourselves. It's not something that Jason Lewis can write into the song set. It's not something that Joe can get up here and, and muster up with this fantastic welcome. Devotion is, according to the scriptures, our response, it's, a, it's the ricochet of, it's the response of, the reflex of what God has done and who God is. Okay? So when, when God appears and presents himself and God's people respond, that's what we're talking about here. Okay? So for us to dive deeper into devotion, our job is to look closer at who God is and what he has done. And through that, as we see it more clearly, what happens is our devotion is kindled. And for these people, this was the key word that held it all together. Now, there's some more things that were included. Uh, the apostles' teaching, okay? That was one thing. I know you probably can't read that from where you're at. It's okay. It's what it says. Apostles' teaching was an outward thing you could see. When you walked into the gathering, somebody, had, uh, somebody was up front teaching, probably all from rote memory. They, may have, they probably didn't have scrolls at this period of time of the Old Testament. They may have. They were available in the temple. So they may have unrolled a scroll every once in a while to point to Jesus. But they did a lot of this verbally. But there was this devotion to the apostles' teachings. These are the guys who were with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, who were commissioned by Jesus to start the church. And so they're teaching what he told them to teach, and the people then were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Okay, in addition to that, um, if you keep going down the list, apostles' teaching to the fellowship. We spent time talking about what this word means, the idea that it was more than just um, a club. It was more than just this membership into an organization, but the living organism of all the, the believers coming together in, in kind of this deep, deep um, driving need to be with each other. This, is it a, I'm afraid to quote this movie because I think it's Jerry Maguire, but this idea of like, you complete me, but, but, but really meaning that. Not on the surface level, I like being around you and you smell good, but this deep sense of I need you and you need me. We're the body of Christ. I'm just a big toe by myself. I need more toes, I need a foot, I need an ankle, I need, I need somebody with, right? So we come together and we are the fellowship, this deep interdependent group of believers. They were also devoted to uh, the breaking of bread, which was two weeks ago. We looked at communion. It was something they did often. It was a beautiful reminder of how God had um, saved them, but it was also the proclamation of the gospel when they got together. And then last week, as um, Valentine came, uh, he preached on prayer. Okay? And so these are the outward things you can see. You like that, huh? When you begin to describe corporate worship, these are the outward things, the outward elements that you should be able to see. Okay? Now, what we're going to do now with the rest of our time is we're going to look on the inside. Okay, what are, the, what are the inward things going on in corporate worship that make what we do honoring to God, prescribed by the scriptures, um, in, in some ways reflective of these early believers in the first church? So we'll come back to this in just a moment. Going to verse 3, which is what I'm going to be calling the essence of corporate worship. Okay, so look at verse 3 with me. I'm sorry, 43. I want to say three. 43. So all these outward things were going on, but there was something going on on the inside of these believers' hearts. Verse 43 says this. Here's, here's what was going on. And awe 
came upon every soul. Okay? And it goes on to say, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Miracles and things were happening. This is right after the Holy Spirit falls for the first time and they're speaking in these foreign tongues and just crazy things are happening. The building is shaking, right? And so we're beginning to understand this word awe. Now, I love that when they saw the miracles of God, the signs of the apostles, when they saw these things, the, the first response wasn't, how can we become magicians like that? How can we become you know, the people who perform these magic trips? No, the people were set back. And you know what I'm talking about, right? This sense of, I want to be able to do that, which we see later on in Acts with uh, the magician who's like, oh, that's pretty cool. How can I have that power to do those kinds of things? But the first response of the people was just this sense of like, ah. Oh. And so I want to talk for just a minute about what this word means and what it means to be filled with awe. Now, if you look the word up itself, just in this particular passage, the word literally means to tremble in terror. So it's a deep sense of fear. Okay, It's not this, this idea of I'm scared of the dark, so turn on the lights, but it's this deep sense of I'm overwhelmed with fear. Now, that's an interesting thing to be describing people who are in the presence of God. Here's why it's interesting. For most of us, we grow up learning that fear is a negative thing. Now, it does have some connection to some real negative things, but I learned fear from Friday the 13th and from Nightmare on Elm Street. Anybody else learn fear that way? This idea that fear was the boogeyman in the dark, and every time you kill him at the end of the movie he comes back for a sequel the next time and so like literally that's when I would get scared I would begin to think those things because those were images those were movies I saw as a young kid and so everything related to the idea of fear was like was gore and negative and there wasn't in my mind room for a healthy sense of fear so many of us we we hear fear describing us being in God's presence we go whoa whoa wait a second like that can't be good why are we why are we scared of God and we automatically go, well, is God the boogeyman? Is he this, right? Is he this, this boogeyman lingering in the dark just waiting to, to get us? I want to give you a few uh, illustrations that I think will help us. I'm going to read a little bit from Chronicles of Narnia. Um, this is a fantastic work by C.S. Lewis. Just started working through it. Um, I've actually never, never read uh, Chronicles of Narnia. I've seen the three movies that have come out. And so I'm working with Hudson and just reading through a little bit at a time through the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, if you don't know, this is C.S. Lewis, Christian author, and he's got so much imagery in here and uh, metaphor and symbolism of who God is. And I think that he really captures this idea of awe really well with Aslan, the, the figure resembling God, okay? This lion character who is feared, right, among all the kingdom because with just his roar, he can bring down the trees and the mountains, right, with, with his paws that are so heavy. He brings with him a sense of, like, respect and, and fear. Well, I wanted to read you just a couple of lines. Before the, um, before the kids in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe meet Aslan, the beavers, they're hanging out with these beavers, try to describe Aslan to the kids, okay? And so I wanted to read for you just a couple of lines about how it, uh, Aslan is described, and then we're going to look at the first time they see him. So uh, this is early on in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so Lucy is, or Susan is saying, I, I thought he was a man. And so the beavers are describing Aslan. 
Check, check. There we go. I could do the voices much better with this anyway. So here we go. Okay, so that's how he's being described. Like, you're going you're gonna to know it when you're in the presence of this lion. So the kids are like, whoa, is he safe? Like, no, 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 no. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. Now, what's interesting is when they meet Aslan for the first time. So here they've met him, it says, but as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. Now think about that for just a minute. People who've never been to Narnia don't even realize that a thing can be, right, both terrifying and good at the same time. See, this is, this is how I would describe and how I've come to know the presence of the living God and what I understand about being filled with awe. That I can, I can be both full of fear and terror and a deep sense of joy and I'm glad to be here at the same time. Let me just read a little bit more. I could just read this all, isn't it good? If you haven't read Chronicles of Narnia, you need to read this. So people have not been in Narnia, they don't think that a thing can be good or terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, pay attention to this, so they're standing there in this great, terrifying lion, right? When they were, when we look at Aslan's face, they caught just a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. And what's going to happen is later they're going to actually begin to communicate and all the trembling is going to go away. And this beautiful capturing of the essence of who God is and what it means to be in his presence, if we understand corporate worship the way the Bible describes it, we are literally in the presence of the God that C.S. Lewis is trying to describe. And so the, the question, is he safe? <laughs> right? I mean, ask the apostles who gave their lives on his behalf. Right? I mean, Peter would say, no, no, he's not safe. Right? Peter was crucified upside down. That's that's James. Threw him off the temple, tried to kill him. John, they threw him in a vat of boiling oil. He's not safe, but he's good. And so when we open up worship and begin to get past the elements on the outside and look at the inside, we see that there is a sense of fear and joy at the same moment. Being in the presence of a holy God. Where does the fear come from? Fear is rooted in two things. This good version of fear. One, I don't deserve to be here. A deep sense of I really am not worthy enough to stand in the presence of a God who's holy. And so that, that, that strikes me with terror. Okay, But there's joy in the sense that he says, but it's okay. I'm allowing you to come in. There's a deep sense of fear of knowing that my sin... Okay? When I'm with you, I'm pretty good at hiding it and compartmentalizing and shutting the doors and putting it in the closet. So, right? And so on, on good days, you don't really know what I'm struggling with. But in the presence of a holy God, it's like the, right? the lights come on. Adam and Eve, fully exposed. And so there's a sense of fear. I'm afraid to be fully exposed. But that fear is met with grace. And I go, yeah, God is terrifying. But he's also good. And so if you were to open up worship and look on the inside, I would say to you, what I'm getting from this passage is the essence, the, 
What's on the inside filling up the space is this deep sense of awe. I don't deserve to be here, right? Like, like we, we are fully aware of what God can do. And yet he chooses not to do what he can do. And instead, he embraces us and pulls us in. And that's the beautiful essence of all. Now let's move forward uh, in the passage. We're going to look at something else. And then we're going to come back and we're going to spend the whole end of this talking about how songs play in. Because music's not really mentioned in this passage. Do you notice that? Okay. So here we go. Uh, after 43, deep sense of awe came over them. Uh, then we move to 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So, so just in case we don't know what he means, he adds this. Let me describe for you what it looks like to have all things in common. 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's what it looks like to have all things in common. It's not that we're all wearing the same shirt or dressing in the same style of clothes or using the same lingo. It's like literally what's mine is yours. What's, what's yours is, is mine. And we, right? There's this sense of like, it's this, these things are all belonging to us. Do you need something? You shouldn't even really need to ask. I just need to be aware that there's a need in your life, and if I have the ability to meet it, right, I meet it. So there's this, this beautiful sense of unity, which we'll come back to. Um, verse 46, and day by day they were attending the temple courts together, the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, Praising God, okay, and we're going to stop right there. So we, we hear something else about their hearts here. They were both glad and generous. Now, I want to, I want to appeal to you um, today that true generosity, okay, whether that's giving, uh, you know, giving more above and beyond in your tithe in worship, whether that's seeing somebody on the side of the road and you, you're pulling over and giving them your time and maybe even some of your finances, you know, to help them, whatever generosity you have, if it's a true, genuine generosity, it's, it's rooted in a sense of thankfulness. Fair enough? Like, if I decide to, uh, that, that, or if I'm overwhelmed or led or however you want to word it, um, God prompts me to, to do some kind of random act of kindness or be generous or help somebody financially, that is rooted in, first of all, a sense of thankfulness. So here's what I would say to us, Okay. This is, this is kind of a conversation I have with myself. If there's ever a time where I'm taking like, my tithe to the offering box and I, and I have that momentary sense of hesitation, like it, it doesn't happen as often as it used to, but because I'm selfish, um, sometimes there's that fleeting moment of all the things that I would like to buy with that money instead, just being honest with you. Um, so then I stop and confess and get right with God, then I, then I bring my offering. But the way I combat that is, is I step back and go, wait a second. <laughs> like, right? I mean, if I'm just giving 10%, like, I've got 90% to be thankful for. Like, like, my kids grow up in a house that has air conditioning and heat and the lights work and the water works and, right, and the toilet's flush thanks to Jerry coming out and fixing our, our plumbing. Like, right, we're blessed. Like, so generosity needs to come out of a sense of thankfulness. So, so we don't give out of, like, just arbitrary law. We don't give because we want everybody else to see what we're doing. We don't give so we can get some tax write-off. We give because we're thankful, and so if you could open up the idea of what worship is, there is then, let's do this together. So here are the outer elements that we've been talking about. Devotion is the one that holds it all together. So you're devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But if we could open it up on the inside, and we have this deep sense of awe, 
right? That is both fearful and joy at the same time. But there's, there's two other heart motives that, that come up, and it's thankfulness and generosity. So looking inside the heart of believers involved in, engulfed in corporate worship, this is what it looks like. If you could just open up my heart and your heart, you would see these things when we participate in corporate worship together. And then I love the unity description because then it brings it all together, doesn't it? This idea that it all kind of works together. Now, it doesn't matter what style of music you play, does it, to do these things? Does it even matter if you have a band or not? Does it even matter if you have a song leader or a music minister or a worship leader? No. Right? You can have these things without a building, can't you? This is corporate worship. Now I'm going to show you how songs come into play. Okay. So... Drop some chronicles right there. I'm just going to look at two supporting passages, Colossians 3, and uh, actually we may look at 3. We'll start in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and then James 5. If you just want to jot those down, you can. So what we're going to see, Ephesians 5, starting in Ephesians 5, is how music facilitates the Chinese throwing star. Okay? Everything that God's called us to do here is facilitated in music. Now, I don't think that you have to be a huge musical fan to say that music is really transcendent of cultures and, 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 and right, genders and ages and eras. It's hard to find a people somewhere who don't have a music, right? Whether it's in the African uh, Sahara, whether it's in, you know, the, if you were in North America before, uh, before the pilgrims came over and, right, had a good party with the, uh, the Indians and had their first rodeo, Plymouth Rock. And, um, and so, like, before all that, the, the native Indians would have their own version of music. And so you go to China, there's music. You go to India, there's music. You go to the Philippines, like Jeff was sharing, there's music, right? So music is transcendent. It's not an American thing, okay? There are styles of it, but music itself is deeply connected to who we are as human. You can't get away from it to the point where, like, the, the Old Testament is full of quoting songs, but then you get a whole book or section devoted to the songs, okay? So, so music is important. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes this. In verse 18, we get this, this kind of this command from him. In 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or drunkenness, but instead, if you're reading this with me, it says, Be filled That's an imperative command. Be filled with the Spirit. So we want to be a Spirit-filled church. I want to be a Spirit-filled believer. Paul's commanding me to be filled right here with the Spirit of God. I step back and go, well, how does that happen? Right? Is there there like a a step one, step two, step three, and woo, woo, I'm filled? Well, he goes on to say, "Here's, here's how you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is drunkenness, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, here's how you do it. Addressing, this is 19, addressing one another in psalms. What an interesting phrase. It literally means talk to one another with songs. That's an interesting thing. I tend to say, this is singing, this is talking. And he says, no, here's how you're going to be filled with the Spirit. I want you to address one another with singing. 
Now he lists three different types of songs here. Look at that. So first of all, address one another with psalms. These are literally what you think the psalms. These are, these are basically discourses or um, epilogues or phrases and poetry of praise. So right now, we'll get to this in just a minute, there's an audience being described. We're singing to one another to start off, okay? I call this the minor audience in worship, and then there's a major audience. So there's a part of this where I'm singing stuff where you can hear it, and you're singing stuff where I can hear it, and we're singing these songs of praise together, and we're kind of singing it to one another. So address one another, speak to one another in songs. And then look what he says. Uh, Hymns and spiritual songs. And then in case we don't really know what he means here, so do we just talk? What are we doing here? No, he says singing and making melody to the Lord. So now we have a major audience, which is God. So there's a minor audience, there's a major audience, but what he, Paul is saying here is, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to be filled with the Spirit. I want you to, I want you to speak to another, one another with songs. Songs of praise. Um, that word hymn literally means it's a, it's, a, it's a song with theological content. Like, it matters what we sing. Did you know that? It matters what we sing. So like, when Jason Lewis puts together a worship set with songs and words that you and I are like singing, like there needs to be some theological content there. Psalms, songs of praise, hymns, songs of theological content, and then spiritual songs. So two ways that we're filled with the Spirit. One, we sing to one another, the minor audience, but two, we sing songs and make melody to the Lord. I'm glad he included that, right? Be filled with the Spirit. All right, how are we going to do that? Let's get together then. Let's speak to one another in singing, singing these songs, but then let's also lift them up and let's sing them vertically to God himself. And we'll be filled with the Spirit according to the Scriptures. That's encouraging to me. And then verse 20, this heart attitude Like he says, sing, make melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks, this is verse 20, always for everything, there's that thankfulness again. See how we're fostering this Acts 2 in singing? This thankfulness and this theological content, the apostles' teachings. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this last one, submitting to one another. We won't have time to get into that one, but those are the three ways. We sing songs to each other, we sing songs to God, and we submit to one another, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look just quickly at uh, Colossians 3, another place where Paul uh, addresses this, starting in verse 16, just two verses, uh, 3.16. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, another imperative command. How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? We could spend our whole time talking about what this looks like. Here's how you do it. You teach and admonish, which means warn one another. So you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. But look at this, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you know that? We teach one another by what we sing. So again, it matters what we sing. And and so there's this kind of this trend to just pull love songs into the church and think that that's enough, okay? I think the passages leave room for some of that, and this idea that we're expressing our affection to God. However, if we are identifying who we're singing to in the song itself, I mean, that could be pretty dangerous, can it? Dangerous in the sense of misleading. Who are we singing to? 
because we're singing to one another and talking about all this love business. And like, whoa, you love me? Like, well, we need to identify then who God is. So we're supposed to warn one another and teach one another by doing what? Singing, again, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Again, look at this, with thankfulness in your heart, so we can't get away from that. Thankfulness in your hearts to God. Just one more place, and then we'll, we'll be done with, with looking through scriptures. I'm gonna invite Jason up after this one passage. In James chapter five, I want you to see how James uses singing and prayer kind of synonymously here. James 5.13, he says this, if any one of you is in trouble, let him what? Pray. Prayer is a natural response when you're in trouble. But look at what the natural response is when you're full of joy. Is anyone happy, then do what? Sing songs of praise. And so we see how singing can facilitate Everything we're doing here, the idea of thankfulness and generosity, um, joy and fear, deep sense of awe, when we begin to describe, like, like we were just singing a minute ago. May the vision of you be the death of me. Did that catch anybody off guard? And that's Isaiah 6. That's Isaiah in the presence of the holy God saying, woe is me, I am ruined, Right? He's trembling with fear. It literally means I'm undone. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I don't deserve to be here. And yet it ends with, right, a sense of grace when God says to Isaiah, who's gonna go for me? Like, I wanna use you. You're right, you don't deserve to be in my presence, but now, now that you're here, come closer. This beautiful idea that what we sing and in our singing when we come together Corporate worship is facilitated. Now, I hope this helped in some way. It did for me in trying to think about there's an outward appearance of corporate worship, but there's an inward essence and heartbeat. And then when you unfold it, it's a beautiful Chinese throwing star. I'm so tempted to launch it. Okay, so what I want to do is I'm going to ask Jason to come up, if he would, and grab the mic on your way up, Jay. Now, a lot of what we talked about here falls into your court of responsibility, Okay. So I think it's most appropriate that we hear a little bit from you. And uh, so I'm just gonna ask him a couple questions. Um, and so um, can I request a song for next week? I'm just kidding. Um, but we begin to get the responsibility that's on his shoulders, right? Like why he doesn't just take requests and go, yeah, we'll throw that one in. Like Jason feels a deep sense, I'm speaking on his behalf, a deep sense of responsibility to facilitate what we just described up here. And what I love about it is he doesn't see himself as the worship leader. He sees himself as the lead worshiper. He's just one of us, right, just kindling up this thing that we call corporate worship. So I want to ask you a couple questions, Jay. Um, first of all, it can be confusing when we get in here and we're singing songs, we're listening to the words, the pronouns are changing. Sometimes we're singing horizontally. Sometimes we're singing, right, songs about God. And then other times we're singing songs to God. Okay, so um, I just want to ask you, uh, who is the audience when the saints collect as the church to sing? Um, let me just read this. Uh, Exodus 20 um, says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, wow. That starts... The Ten Commandments, the very first thing, you shall have no other gods before me. That tells me when we're, leading, when we're up here leading worship that there's, only, there's an audience of one. 
that's what's going through my heart when we're singing uh, the songs, is singing songs to God, about God, all that stuff. It's not me singing to you guys. Uh, if, if you know anything about me, I don't like the concert feel unless I'm out there on the front row, you know, at a concert or something. Yeah, at a concert. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because at a concert, the audience sits down here and the choir or the band is up here, right? And the audience listens. Okay. But when we come into corporate worship, we're inviting everybody here in essence to sing and to participate in making the music. And like I said earlier, sometimes we're singing songs horizontally about God, and other times we're singing songs to God. So even in the songs we're singing about God, how is God the audience? When uh, Jay was talking about this and he was asking me questions, I was actually doing some reading and stuff, and I, I showed this to him, and he said it's really good, so I'm going to read this too. Uh, it's in Psalms 120, it's 1 through uh, 3. It says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are, it, are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So for me, um, when we're singing songs that may not say you, you know, uh, and we're talking to each other, we are in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And we're singing songs because of the glory of who he is and because of what he's bestowed on our lives. That's good. Um, just one last question from your perspective as you stand up here and you lead us. And sometimes we're good at singing and participating. Other times we kind of stand back or like, hey, convince me I need to do this. And, and or, you know, I know that's my own heart is to come into this room not really ready to engage in that. And, uh, and sometimes I feel like it's your job to get me there. Let me just ask you from your perspective as you stand up here and you lead us into this presence of God, how important is it for us out here to be unified? Like, unified in our hearts, but display that in the unity of our voices. How important is it for us to, to all sing uh, in this corporate worship? Well, I, mean, every, I mean, it goes with everything that you said today, that <clears throat> me. he tells us to sing, and for us to be together, um, I don't really know, uh, I don't know, I mean, when, when we're singing now, what was your question again? I didn't. No, you're fine. Sorry, I did, it was a long question. So like, I'll word it this way. So God's the audience, audience of one. How is it important for us to have a voice of one? Like, we're, we're all singing together. Whether we're singing on key or not, whether we're singing harmony, melody, like how important is it for the saints to be singing? It's very important because it's your heart. Okay. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. We, I mean, we all don't sing on key all the time, you know, myself included. But... God is wanting us to be displaying who he is. And what's gone on, is he, what's gone on in here and, and, and the changes that has gone on in your life is what we display when we're singing. So uh, whether you're singing the right words, hopefully we do that because of the truth. But whenever we're not singing on key or whatever, it just doesn't matter. Right. Out, out here. I mean, y'all so you'd sing. rather us sing and be off key. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'll tell you this. Two... Oh, it was two or three weeks ago, um, you were preaching and you were talking about how uh, how uh, filled you are whenever you see them. Like you mm-hmm. need, he, you know, he wants you guys here and it does something for him. Well, I can speak on behalf of everybody that I lead worship with. When you guys sing so loud that I can't hear myself up here because it's happened, mm-hmm. that 
the, the sense of, of who God is and, and his presence is just, it's overwhelming for me. And, and if you haven't experienced that, you know, that just goes into, I mean, I could go into another sermon, salvation. Um, you know when you've been saved because you've experienced the, the presence right. of God. And I think there's a balance to that. You never want to become a distraction because then you begin to take away from the unity. Like I have to think about that even myself. Okay, so I want to participate at the level where there's like unison in what we're doing. Never to the point where I'm becoming the soloist, right? So either singing my own lines or my own notes or singing louder than anybody else so everybody can hear me. But like when we, like we should be thinking about things as we're singing. How do I join my voice with what's going on in the room to display the unity that we have so that we truly are worshiping to an audience of one with one voice? And those of you who sing really well, hopefully your volume level is just a little bit louder so that those that, of us who don't, it looks like we're, we're just lip syncing, right? And we're just singing underneath you but a deep sense that we need to be on this together. Yeah, and just to, just to go even a step further, I know for me, I mean, I don't, I don't do it up here when I'm here or whatever, but there's a sense, like we get through with a song or whatever, and you guys have just, uh, just opened up your hearts and opened up your mouths and, and, and allow the praise to flow. Right there at the, the very first one, shout for joy to the Lord, hmm. all the earth. Not just myself or, or Martin or anybody else that's up here just singing. You know, that's okay. You also see clap. Raise your hands. You'll see all that stuff. And it's all just an affection of who God is and what he's done in your life. And, and for me, uh, you know, we sing songs that I raise my hands or I, I fall on my knees or, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to fall on my knees and lead at the same time, so I don't. But I want you guys to know that if the scripture says to do that, you're not going to offend me or anybody else. It's, it's perfectly okay to shout, to clap, to raise your hands, to fall on your knees. I mean, it's mm, good. I'll just end with a word of edification. Um, the, it's real easy to be up here doing what these guys do, especially as talented as they are, and to get kind of a sense of kind of rock star mentality, like you're here to hear us. And so as a leader, you have to fight off that urge and display a sense of humility and a sense of this is not about us constantly. And, uh, and Jason, I'm thankful that you're our worship leader, our lead worshiper, because I think with all the talent we have up here, you guys collectively, I think this, they do a great job, right, of taking the glory and just saying, hey, no, 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 it goes up there. If you're going to clap, clap to him. Don't clap for us, right? And so I just want to say, hey, I'm thankful for that. I think you display that and that you guys as a whole worship team uh, do that well. This is not about us. It's about, it's about, it's about one audience. Um, and so thank you for leading us that way. I'm going to pray and we're going we're to continue singing.